0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 9 mainly this morning. As we continue to look at the prologue. What's commonly known as the prologue to the Gospel of John. According to John. It's possible to read this section of the writing of John today. And immediately recognize that John is talking about Jesus Christ. The eternal Word of God. But to the audience that received this first writing, that would not have been so clear. Because remember, we have 2,000 years of history. We have the end of Christ's ministry and His death on the cross and His resurrection from the tomb and the apostles' lives after that and the establishment of a church and now thousands of years of history since then of the church being sustained by Christ. And so we look at it and we begin in verse 1 with the assumption that this word that is being spoken of is Jesus Christ. But that's not how the first reader would have looked at it. And so John does several things to give emphasis to who he's talking about. Remember I said last time we preached on this passage that John took uh, the first five verses to explain the eternal nature of the Son of God. How that He had been with God, that He was God, that in His very essence He is God. And that that is the essence and the one who gives life. He created all things and without Him nothing was made that was made. And His light, His other essence, another part of His being is light. He is the source of light. Remember we talked about Genesis 1, that light was spoken into existence, but that it, unlike the other creation, where uh, you have some material matter put together, this This creation comes from Him, His very essence. Like life, which was breathed into Adam's nostrils and put into all the other animals, comes from His very being, who He is. Light does the same thing. Jesus, or the Son of God, eternal Son of God, the Word is life. He is light. And then, to give emphasis to uh, this truth, He takes an aside he breaks off his thought on the paragraph and begins to talk about the witness to the light the small light remember the little light the flashlight strength light of john the baptist brought witness to the light like the sun the new sun as it shines in the morning every morning like it is outside even now you know i often wanted to take these plastic coverings off these windows But I'm afraid you'll get too distracted looking at all the things outside of here. Uh, But in creation, when it's shining with the light of the sun, isn't it beautiful? And so like John the Baptist was a little light to the big light of Jesus Christ, that brings emphasis again to who Jesus is and, and to His power and His transcendence above creation. And then he he does 6 through 8 to talk about John the Baptist. So remember, that best fits up with the paragraph that begins in 19, verse 19, and goes through uh, verse 28, or 34 actually. So right in the middle of this great dissertation on the eternal nature of Jesus as the Word of God, the life, the light, he inserts for emphasis sake this point about John the Baptist. And then... He drops right back down to talk about Jesus again, or the light. And that's where we are now. That was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. You know, as we look at this passage, we are reminded of the rejection... Of the light. We see that in our world today. John saw it in his day that the light is shining, and yet there's a whole group of people, a large group of people, who are blind. And I want you to understand it's not that these people see the light and say, ah, oh, that's not light. Let me give an example it would be as if we were having church at midnight in the darkest watch of the night. Pitch black, as my daddy used to say. It's pitch black outside. That's the description of the world. It's dark. And because of a shortage of money or something like that, we can't have any lights on. So we, you've come to worship, and the sanctuary lights aren't on, and it's dark outside. And you're all here. And I'm preaching away in the dark. That would be better sometimes for me. Then I wouldn't have to see you. It would definitely be better for you all the time because you'd never have to see me. But I'm preaching alone. Waxing eloquent. And someone flips on the lights. And I I would just freeze, wouldn't you? I mean, it's gone from pitch black dark to all of a sudden startling light everywhere. You know, I would kind of stop for a moment to gain my focus. Now, the only catch is there's only a few people who can actually see. Everybody else is blind. They're physically unable to see any light, perceive any light. And so does it matter if we turn the lights on to them or not? No, they can't see it anyway. The description of John, the apostle, in this passage is that the light comes into the world, the light switch is flipped on. The problem is most of the people in the world are blind so that they cannot see any light anyway. So the light is beaming. The light is shining. There's not a shortage of power in the light. The source of the light is infinite. The source of the light is powerful. The source of the light is greater than anything else, anywhere. The problem is, not with the light, the problem is that people are blind. And so the light comes into the world, and the world can't receive it. Because the world can't see it. And so for the few of us in the room who had sight, once our eyes adjusted, we would have a whole new world. Our lives would be changed forever. And we would begin to share that with one another around all of these people who can't what? See anything. They would still be groping in the darkness. They would begin to ask the questions like, these people are weird. What are they talking about? They're talking about things I don't understand. I can't see them. It makes no sense to me. Am I describing a familiar scene to you? To John it was very familiar because he was part of the world that had eyes to see the light of Jesus Christ. And he was in the middle of a world of blind people who could not see. And so when he described what he was seeing in Jesus, they said to him, I don't see what you see. The problem with blind people who've always been blind is they have no pictures of the reality around them. They can't see at all. That's the picture of the world, of humanity, of people that you live with and I live with who do not have Jesus Christ. Do you understand when you begin to tell someone who is not a Christian things about Christ... They're still in their blind state. They have no data in their mind, no data in their spirit to hang that truth on so that it makes sense. It's what does Paul say? Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is power, it is life, it is light. Now, do you catch the Gravity, the, the power of this paragraph we're looking at. John is shouting from the rooftop about a light that is more powerful than anything anyone has ever seen or ever could imagine. And yet he's shouting it off the rooftop to a bunch of folks who have no ability to see it. They have no ability to see it. And so they're groping in the darkness and he's talking about the light. Now, he says they reject the light. So I want to dig into this statement in in verse 9. I want to to start out in verse 9. That's where we'll be today. I have no uh, illusions of uh, grandeur that I'll finish through verse 11. So we'll just talk about verse 9. The light was coming into the world, the Bible says. The light was coming into the world. John says the light was coming into the world. He's not saying... Understand this, he's not saying that everyone who comes into the, light, into the world has equal light. That's significant. Because how, uh, many of you are using King James or New King James scripture as it was translated. How many people in here have a King James or a New King James scripture? Yeah, yeah lots of hands. Read your verse silently, I'll read it out of my New King James. Look what it says. That was the true light, no comma, no punctuation, right? That was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. The implication, according to the way the New King James and the King James reads, and the Phillips translation and others, the implication is that everybody who's ever been born has equal access to the light. They all see it. Okay? They all see it equally. That's the implication. There's a problem with that implication. It's a big problem with that implication because you and I know that everyone doesn't equally perceive the light. The verse is not in the original, in in the letter John wrote, it is clearer than in our English. That he's not saying that everyone who comes into the world equally sees the light. So how how are we left to interpret? Well, the the battle comes down. The the decision that we had to make is on the word coming. The word coming is the word which causes ambiguity in the verse. There's two main understandings. So I want you to kind of grab hold of both of these. And I'm going to give you the one I believe truest to the whole uh, scheme of Scripture. The first option you have is like the King James to say that everyone gets the light. If coming is understood in this way, then this is supporting a natural revelation. This leaves us with the idea that everyone is born with an inner light that at some point bears witness to the greater light, and then they are left with this inner light being their guide to accept or reject Jesus. This this is best understood in the history of the Quakers. The Quakers believed in something known as inner light. They evidenced that they believe inner light is what transformed a person because at their services they had no pastor, which some of you might enjoy. They had no preaching, which some of you would really enjoy. They sat around in a circle equal to one another, and a guy would sing, and everybody would join in singing. And then somebody would pray and they'd all bow their heads. And then somebody would read from a passage of Scripture and kind of give some light about it. And then they would leave. That was the end of their service. And their point was that you didn't lead people to the light. That the inner light of every human was there. And that just by being around other people who had answered the call and believed in Jesus, that this inner witness would lead people to Jesus Christ. They didn't need to be told to accept Christ. They just kind of would come to it one day aha moment would happen. The lights would flip on and they'd get saved. Now, before you scoff at the Quakers too much, that's where postmodern church is headed today. Leaderless, preacherless, void of a gospel good news message. Let's all get together. Let's all be equal in the Lord. They got good proof text for that. And then let's just kind of sing and pray and get spiritual. And eventually... We'll all hook into the, the light. Jesus, we'll see it one day. It'll come. I, I tell you the greatest example, and he has to be commended. Uh, I, saw, I was watching, him, Amy said, why do you watch these people? Last night, you know, I've studied, I've studied all week. I'm all primed up about the light, and I'm so excited, and then I turn it on, and I may be crushing somebody's hero. I don't want to hurt you or offend you, but uh, the 80-year-old Robert Shuler was there in his pulpit. He is a magnificent looking guy, isn't he? And, you know, he's got on the robe. He looks, he looks priestly in his cathedral and uh, of glass. And he, I, he says he's preaching. Now, let me explain what he's saying, basically, is what I've just told you the Quakers believed. He says, everybody has good in them. Didn't you know that? Everybody is a good person they just got to discover it. And the role of the church is to help people find their inner goodness so that they will then love their fellow man. And if they love their fellow man, then we all know that Jesus said once you love your fellow man, you'll love God. And then instead of talking about sins of commission, because nobody commits a sin in his theology, see, We need to be talking about sins of omission only. And he said proudly, for 50 years at this crystal cathedral, we've been talking about sins of omission. We never talk about sins of commission. Because people are good, they all have the inner light, and if we just tell them what they should be doing, plugging into having a purpose in life, having a purpose-driven life, who his protege wrote the book on, they'll all find it. They'll be good people. And everybody will eventually, in Robert Shuler's theology, go to heaven. That's what's going to happen. Everybody eventually is going to get to Jesus in some way. In other words, in contradiction to our text, in Robert Shuler's world, the light is shining in the world and everybody is going to see the light. Because everybody is essentially good. Now that's not the message of the New Testament. That's not the message that we read in the pages of the New Testament. So if you translate, that's why it's so important to really dig in and understand a verse when you read it. Just something as simple as coming into the world can change your meaning. Now, let me give you some other reasons why this can't work. Number two, John never uses the phrase come into the world or coming into the world for anybody except Jesus Christ. In his entire message, in his entire gospel, he says over and over again, Jesus comes into the world. He never says any other human being came into the world. Does that mean he doesn't believe we came into the world? No. He has a special designation to talk about Jesus and the way he was born. And that special designation when he wants to talk about it is that he came into the world. He's coming. He he was the one who came into the world. So what am I saying? This is the best way to understand this verse, I believe. This is the best way to read the verse. It's in the NIV this way. It's in the ESV this way. It's in the New English Bible just so you don't think I'm just shooting from the hip and making something up. There's a lot of people who believe it should be read this way. That was the true light, comma, that comma is important, which gives light to every man, comma, who comes into the world. So what have we done? We've made the part about man parenthetical. It's not necessary. It's an aside. So we could read it. That was the true light who comes into the world. And I believe this is the what John was communicating to us because... First of all, the Bible in no other place supports in any other verse an inner light that people are born with. Quite the contrary, everywhere else in the Bible we see men are depraved, fallen, sinful, evil to their very core, to their very heart. Even the heart is seen as exceedingly wicked. It can't even be distrusted. It will deceive you. You know your feelings and your heart will deceive you. People tell me, well, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. You're going to make a lot of mistakes in life on that philosophy. I felt like it was the right thing to do because our hearts are wicked to the very core. We're fallen. We're sinners. We we try to do what's right a lot of times, that, but we're even confused about what is right and what is wrong. Secondly, John uses this phrase coming into the world to describe Jesus and His birth. Look at Or you don't have to look, but John 6.14, you might write that down. The Bible says, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. That was the priest, or the people said that about Jesus. John 11.27, Mary and Martha, their confession is, I believe. Martha's confession is, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. See, the same phrase as what we find in verse 9 is being used of Jesus. John, uh, John repeatedly uses it over 12 times in his... Uh, it's either 12 or 14 times he uses this same phrase to speak of Christ. He never uses it for anyone else. And the last reason I believe that the significance here is on the light. That was the light who comes into the world is because it fits in our paragraph better. In this prologue, the the concept that's being pushed is the light, the word. And if you make, in this verse, coming into the world about men, then you've changed the subject of what John is writing about. He's no longer writing about the word, the light, the life. He's now writing about the response of people to the word, to the light. It changes the meaning of the paragraph. It would be unnatural for for John to do this. Instead, I believe he's simply saying that John the Baptist was not the light, verse 6, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. That's the best I could come up with. That's the best translation I saw was that the true light was coming into the world. John says that not only is the true light coming... But John says that it is the only true light that is coming into the world. It's the only true light. That word true is better understood to mean genuine or real. In the Greek, there are two words for truth. One is truth versus falsehood. Okay? So you have what is true and you have what is false. And that is not the word John is using. John isn't talking about true versus false when he says the true light. He's saying the genuine light, the real thing, the 100% light, the perfect light is coming to the world. John the Baptist was a light. The prophets were lights. Moses was a light. Abraham was a light. There have been a lot of little lights through the history of mankind, before and after Christ. But this one who came into the world is the genuine Source of light. He is the light. He is not witnessing about the light. He is light. He is the true Son of God. Isn't, isn't this, just think about it. Is, this is an amazing statement. John is saying the, this light is so different from all other lights that it must have a category by itself. It can't, you can't put Jesus in anybody else's box. He stands alone. You have the great prophets you would think of Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all these great prophets. And then what John is saying, guys, you think about these men and how holy they are and how wonderful they are. And I tell you, they're not even worthy to be in the same category as this light. They simply talked about light. And I'm telling you, the one who is light has come. And his name, later he's going to tell us, is Jesus. And so we have this incredible statement about the light. The Father, God the Father, showed His glory through the law, through the prophets, even through John the Baptist. They had all been partial revelations of the glory of God. But when Jesus came, when Jesus came into the world, we finally had the exact representation, the exact essence of the glory of God. We have that in Jesus and in Him alone. There are many good things in the world. Things that are partially uh, true. But we have only been given the whole truth in Jesus Christ. You might have come here today with confidence in morality and goodness of your fellow men. Lots of people have confidence in morality and the goodness of men. Uh, You know, a whole theory of science is built around evolution evolution fails not only because it's scientifically improbable and impossible the way it's explained but it's morally impossible because to hold to this theory of scientific evolution or that man humanism is humans are the greatest of all things means that from adam forward men have been getting better That's what evolution teaches us. Every generation of humans should be getting better. I'm sorry. I failed to see it. Last year, a hundred thousand people were slaughtered in the Sudan. Ask them if humanity is getting better. Why were they killed? Well, just because they were of another ethnicity, because they were Christians, because they were different, and they were just wiped off the face of the earth like cattle. We we gasp at Hitler and his uh, techniques of killing six million people. But yet, in our own country, our government has legislated the killing of over 40 million infant babies in the mother's womb don't you know we don 't need to kid ourselves if you trust in the morality of man you get i mean we don 't have anything to hope in. Some of you came with that hope, and I hope that you lose your hope today because it won 't be found in morality or in goodness. You might have entered the building with confidence placed in material wealth of our society, the fact that we 're the wealthiest society to ever walk on the face of the earth. Some of you are trusting in the American dream that you will be able to succeed in life and you will be able to live the American dream to its fullest and you will then be saved, in a sense, from wickedness and from poverty and from starvation and from plagues and from disease. You will be able to insulate yourself with goods and with wealth to the point that you'll be untouchable. But every day billionaires and millionaires die every day people lose their worldly goods and possessions every day every day is one day more than you were promised any good thing any wealth on this earth possibly you came with your hope today in the democratic republic government that we live in in the united states and the hope that it has to offer If that is the case, then I'm afraid your hope is shot because what we're supposed to be the most moral men in our country have been taking bribes for their entire tenure in office. They haven't been working for your good or my good. They've been working for their good. And so if your hope is in a politician in a political party, in some great grassroots movement of retaking this republic and making it what it was supposed to be, this beacon of light. I'm sorry. You have no hope. You have no hope. It's a failure. It can only fail. But I want you to know that these are all partial lights. Sure, they have some good in them, but they're going to leave you in the wilderness of despair as fast as you can get there. They're going to leave you. I want you to know that you can't educate yourself well enough to escape darkness. You can't become so smart that you can understand God and His ways. You can't insulate yourself from darkness with things and possessions. It finds you wherever you are. You cannot even save yourself from the clutches of darkness with good works, charitable deeds, and a life lived for society and the betterment of mankind. Even you are susceptible to corruptness. The one and only genuine light is your only hope. If you will be saved from darkness, if you will be able to escape the clutches of death and darkness, it will only happen through the light. And his name is Jesus Christ. John says in verse 9 that the light was coming into the world and that the light is the only genuine light that can offer you any hope of salvation from darkness. So he said the light is coming. He said it's the only genuine light as opposed to all the other lights. And then finally in this verse he says it exposes the darkness of every man. I know some of you thought I was going to skip that because of my theology. But there's no need to skip it because biblical truth is biblical truth, and it fits. Listen to this. The light does expose the darkness of every man. The world has a funny way of making darkness seem like light to us. When you compare cotton, excuse me, I'm the son of a cotton farmer. When you look at cotton, it looks white. There's nothing like seeing money, I mean cotton, when you ride past the field. And compared to the dirt, it's white. Compared to the green of the trees, it's pearly white. But if you have a freak snowstorm during harvest season, and you wake up looking at that same cotton field, and the ground is covered with pure, white, untouched snow, that cotton looks like dirty, filthy rags. And Isaiah says, all of our good deeds are as filthy rags when they're compared to the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the Lord. So, Jesus, when we look, he exposes the darkness of every man. Now, next week, we're going to uncover two more truths that are found in verses 10 and 11, but I want to leave you with the result of the light, because I believe that the light is shining. I believe the light is Jesus Christ. I believe He's the only hope of anyone for salvation. But how does that impact you? How is that going to make a difference in your life tomorrow or today? Well, there was once a murderer. A murderer for hire, in a sense, he had papers, he was official, and he went on the cause of religion. And his goal was to stamp out everyone who believed in the light, Jesus Christ. And so he was feared among the church more than any man in his day. He even commissioned the killing of one of the most honorable, wise, and full of the Holy Spirit men to ever walk the earth. His name was Stephen. And as Saul held the coats for those who would stone Stephen to death, and then he left to go on his way to Damascus, he was presented with the light. You see, Paul was blind, not physically like other people around him might have been, but spiritually he was blind. He could not see the truth of Jesus Christ. He was stamping out Christianity to the best of his ability until he saw the light. His reaction to the light is the same as yours if you've ever seen it. He fell on his face and he worshiped. Nobody ever sees the light and walks away unchanged. If you have had your blind eyes given sight, if you if you have been made alive, you're never dead again. You're never blind again. You cannot reject this light. It's the most precious light in all of the world. He would go on to call himself the chief among sinners. So maybe you think you're too bad for the light to shine in your life, but you're not. It's shown in him, and it can show in you. And you would say, well, you know, he's an apostle. He's an apostle, so, you know, he was probably different than the rest of us. Well, I want to share a a story of, of, of a person Uh, James Montgomery Boyce gives an account of a missionary in Korea named Archibald Campbell. Mr. Campbell was in a country before he was in Korea before it was the gospel was known among the people. He wrote a letter back to recount what he saw while on the ground in Korea. This is what he said in Korea. There was spiritual darkness until the gospel of Christ was brought in men. This is, this is the nation as he saw it. Men sold their daughters, their sisters, and sometimes their wives into prostitution without any qualm of conscience. Better class women were not to be seen on the streets. Young girls had to wear great hats made of reeds for four feet across, which completely hid their face from view. Wife beating was commonplace. I've seen a man dragging his wife along the street by her hair. Onlookers shrugged their shoulders and said aloud, that thing is going to die. My own frantic appeal to the chief of police proved useless. There was little that could be called integrity among them. Selfishness was in the very physical makeup of this people. Those who were sick were only treated by doctors if they could pay, and lepers were thrown out of society as in olden days into colonies. The blind were simply beggars on the street with no help or mercy from their fellow man. Now that's the account of Campbell when he reached Korea as a missionary where there had never been the gospel. These are the people he found. So Campbell and others began to preach the gospel. And they began to see a society transformed little by little. And then the Korean War hit and values began to change even though there were relatively few who had accepted Jesus as the light. The change exemplified the following story. It's exemplified by this story, which he also tells. There was a a family living in a refugee camp due to the destruction of the Korean War. Their son was named Oh Hin Ho. Oh Hin Ho had an opportunity to go to America, which was rare in those days. He quickly left Korea and moved to Philadelphia, where he enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania. One evening, while on his way to mail a letter, this young man was attacked by a gang of young men and killed. His parents received words thousands of miles away, living in a shelter in this refugee camp made from scrap lumber. That's all they had. But they were Christians. They had seen the light. The light had shone in their darkness. And with the help of their Christian friends living around them, they showed the transforming power of the genuine light. You say, what does it matter? The light's shining. Okay, it's the true light. Who cares? What does it do for me? Well... For this couple who saw the genuine light, they came through the word of Jesus Christ. They raised with the help of their Christian friends enough money to send to the United States. In the envelope with the money was a letter to the officials in the government in Philadelphia. It simply said, please forgive all of the boys who killed our son. Use this money to send them to a Christian school that they might hear the message of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can change them inside out. You know, you and I might say, I just couldn't do that. Every person deserves to receive punishment for a cold-blooded crime. What about the law? What about the honor and worth of their own son? I could never forgive a person for taking away my child. This would be my response in my nature. This might be your response to a horrific crime in your nature. But a person transformed by the genuine light of the Savior does not scream for the penalty of the law. He screams for the just grace of God through Jesus Christ. The one who's been forgiven all things through the blood of Jesus is unable to not forgive those who offend him through the amazing grace given them by God through Jesus Christ. That's the power. And that's the truth of verse 9. The true light, the genuine light, which enlightens, reveals the darkness of everyone, was coming into the world. And the question left for you and I today as we close this service is this. He's coming to the world, but has that genuine light shined? In you. It's not enough that that light shines in the world. It's not enough that it shines in your mother or father or in your family or your friends. It must shine in you. And this is the confidence that I have. I have confidence that everyone who is lost today in this room, who is called by that same light, that same Lord, Jesus Christ, will respond. They will be saved. Because when a blind man receives his eyes, he never gropes for the darkness again. He never turns away from the light. He always believes. He always accepts. He always is transformed. And then he can say, I've been forgiven much and I forgive much then he can say, don't just give him justice. Give him just mercy and just grace based on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh, Lord, we so often just want justice. I'm guilty of saying, well, I hope that man or this person or that woman or this child gets what they have coming. To them. And Lord, it just shows that even in my life, as I read these things and study them and understand them more and more, I still, I still have a powerful sin nature in me. I still lack understanding about your grace. I still can't understand forgiveness. But Lord, I want to understand it. I want to see it. I want to I want to be able to live in it and live through it. But you'll have to do it because I can't. Because everything inside of me, everything inside of me wants justice for everyone else and lenience for myself. And I know that that's sinful and I know that it's not the gospel and I know it's not the truth and I confess it. And I ask, Lord that you would help me to have a heart for just grace and just mercy. Based on Jesus Christ, the true light which shone in the world and is coming into the world and has come into the world. Lord Jesus, we love you and praise you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. We have a, a privilege today.